Well, as you maybe are familiar with this passage in Romans 1, maybe you've read it before, possibly not, but either way, many times this particular passage in Romans 1 and even the surrounding verses around these uh, eight verses has been used as an explanation of God's existence, sort of in an apologetic sense, defending the faith. Many would possibly use these particular verses in Romans 1 or maybe as a commentary on different subject matters, giving us more understanding on God's perspective on them. Commentary on matters like sexual immorality, homosexuality, or witchcraft, or paganism, or atheism even, understanding the existence of God and so forth. And so there's many different things that are within Romans chapter 1 that many times we use and understand. The Apostle Paul, as he penned these words to the church there in Rome, was purposely seeking, especially in the first several chapters, to equip the believers there in Rome to defend their faith, to take on opposition, which they were under greatly for their faith. And certainly he was seeking with great purpose to equip them, to help them know how to answer for the faith that is within them. However, a closer, I hope, look at these verses will reveal to you and to me that we have something very much in common, even with those spoken of in Romans 1. Sometimes we read the list in Romans 1 and we go, oh, that's not about me. I'm going to move on to some other part of Scripture. But actually, there probably are some very significant common points of intersection in this chapter of Romans that I would like for us to consider as we are looking at this subject matter of being renewed in the grace of God this year. As we want to and desire to Seek God renewing us inwardly, from the inside out. What does God tell us in his word regarding these verses in Romans 1? I think a close look would reveal that even those who would follow Christ, those who hear this morning, those of us who know the Lord and desire to follow him, who embrace the gospel of grace fully with our hearts, and we seek to want to uh, apply that, in our minds, in our lives, and daily, we, we wrestle with what, with what that looks like in our life from day to day. We have a common issue with those mentioned. And the common issue is really an issue of the heart. It's a common issue of the heart and how our heart is drawn to things that cause us great spiritual damage and heartache and struggle, and often get us distracted or cast us into a different direction because of the choices that our hearts make towards these things that God has allowed for us to be exposed to. You see, though we may not struggle with the particular sins that Romans 1, even as you read its entirety, might relate to us, we do share a common heart problem lying at the root of all that's in Romans chapter 1. We share a common heart issue. You know, some of us think, like I mentioned, that idolatry may not even relate to us. You think of, you hear the word idolatry, and maybe your mind goes to a third world country or to some other part of the world where they carve idols out of wood or or out of stone or, or some other precious metal. And 
Or maybe your mind goes back to the Old Testament and think about the Israelites or all the pagan nations and their idols and what they struggled with and what they used in their particular pagan worship. And maybe you don't think that really connect, doesn't connect. You, maybe you do think that doesn't connect with me. I don't have an issue of that kind of idolatry. I don't worship idols like that. And though we may not and do not worship idols like that, we do still struggle with worship of the heart for things other than the one true God. We struggle with, all of us, if we take a close look, struggle with worshiping and having a heart of idolatry. Um, An author, Keyes, in The Idol Factory, gives this thought as he says, a careful reading of the Old and New Testament shows that idolatry is nothing like the crude, simplistic picture that springs to mind of an idol sculpture in some distant country. The apostle associates the dynamics of human greed, lust, craving, and coveting with idolatry. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. It is found on center stage. That's a challenge. What he's saying is, no, we can't just cast this thought of uh, subject matter of idolatry to the, mar- to the, to the margins, the edges, uh, the outskirts of what it means to live the Christian life. The scriptures don't even do so. Instead, the scriptures say that this issue is on center stage and must be addressed by us and looked at for God himself has addressed it on center stage in his own word. And so as we renew ourselves in God's grace, the one thing we must know without question, idolatry of the heart, this is very important, idolatry of our heart affects every single one of us in this room. Every single person it affects in some way or form. And renewal cannot happen unless idolatry is understood. It's understood, identified, and then dealt with by every single son or daughter of God. Every single child of God must deal with this subject matter, must deal with the issue of idolatry. And so we're going to look at what it means to understand idolatry, and then we're going to look what it means to identify heart idolatry. So first, let's look at understanding idolatry of the heart. In verse 25, we see that idolatry exchanges truth for falsehood. Idolatry exchanges truth for falsehood. Paul writes that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged truth for falsehood, for a lie. And so whenever we exchange the truth of God for a lie, what is that, how does that affect us? Well, whenever we exchange truth for a lie, then we're not acting according to truth. We're not following truth and therefore We're building our life. We're doing uh, things in our life that are based upon falsehood, things that don't last, things that are not true and accurate, things that are not real and necessary uh, that God has allowed for us to experience. And so whenever we exchange that truth, that God's truth for falsehood, we're incapable of truly worshiping God. We can't worship God in a whole environment of falsehood. The only way to worship God is in truth. Jesus himself said, we worship in spirit, in truth. 
That's the only way we can worship God is in His truth. We can't try to come to Him in any other environment except truth. And so, worshiping false gods, worshiping other things, always begins with allowing our minds to believe some falsehood. When we start to move towards valuing other things in our life, we begin to believe a lie. And what's that lie? Well, at least that lie is that that which we are being drawn to with value of our heart in worship is actually going to satisfy us more, better than what God has said He is for us. And that's a lie. But we begin to believe that and we're drawn towards that and how much we pursue that will then also affect how we come to worship even God himself. How can you identify falsehood? How can you identify falsehood, a lie that maybe the evil one like we spoke about last week is trying to sell us? How can you identify falsehood well? Do you know? Well, I think the way to identify lies and falsehood that is trying to sell us or attract us or distract us is by knowing truth very well. When you know God's truth very well, it's much more likely you will understand falsehood when it comes in front of you, when it passes across your face, when you're exposed to it, when it comes at you, when you have to make a choice and falsehood is one option. You'll know it's falsehood because you know truth very well. It's really hard to know falsehood when you don't know truth very well because truth isn't that clear because you don't know it very well. And so falsehood, and oftentimes we know the lies of the evil one and the lies of this world and even the lies of our own flesh are very hard to discern. Scripture says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. And with Scripture telling us, with God's truth telling us that our heart's that way, certainly it can trick us. We can be tricked. And so we must know truth very well so that we can identify falsehood and be able to deal with it and not exchange what is God's truth for falsehood. falsehood. That's why it's so important to know the Scriptures, to know God's Word, for that is truth. He has given it to us. You have free access to it, full access to it, and that we seek to really know the Word of God, His truth in your own life. To know what God says. Know what He says is true. Know what He says is right. Know what He says that is so beautiful and right for our lives. The Word of God instructs us about what is false, what is evil, what's distorted, what is not true. It clearly does so. And especially against the backdrop of God's grace. That's what the scriptures do for us. I thought about, that, I thought about this fact uh, as I was preparing the message today. Um, if you simply rely on my sermon once a week to help you know truth, hopefully it will help some, but if you simply or exclusively rely on my sermon or anyone's sermon once a week, then 
approximations, give or take. You're not at, at worship uh, every now and then and so forth in a given year at Christ Community. I would have had about one day in the entire year with you to give you truth. One day, 24 hours. That's all I would have, that much time, to impart God's truth to you. One out of 365 days total is all, I, is all you would be getting. Think about that. So if God even kept you here for 30 years at Christ Community Church hearing, I can't imagine, me preach for 30 years, then I would have had a whole month in three decades. That's all. A whole, which a month imparting truth to you. So if you depend upon one month for the next 30 years for you to know truth and discern it, and that's all you're depending upon, then you're in bad shape. You are very limited. You're very limited. You're limiting yourself. From, you certainly will not know God's truth very well. And you will not be able to discern seven days a week truth from falsehood. Knowing God's Word, spending time there, spending time with others in God's Word, wrestling with His truth, hearing, listening to His truth, knowing His truth, studying, memorizing His truth, meditating upon His truth, that takes investment in time. But we must do that, all of us, not just the preacher. All of us as believers, as those who say our life depends on the truth of God. We build our lives upon his truth. How can you build your life upon something you spend 30 minutes a week in? You can't. You know that's not possible. We must have God's word as a major aspect of acquiring God's truth. So, I want you to know the gospel of grace so well that any time you hear something that runs counter to it, you'll recognize it. That's what I desire. As your pastor, I would want and would pray that you would be able that any time, wherever you are, whenever it occurs in your life, whether it be something on the internet that comes across your eyes or your ears or something on TV or something any in your, anywhere in your environment, anywhere in your children's environment that they are exposed to that is falsehood, that you'll be quickly and easily able to recognize it against the truth of God's You'll be able to do that. That's what I just, you know, throughout the Bible, we see how others exchange the truth of God for falsehood. All the way back in the garden, Adam and Eve, they exchanged truth for falsehood from the serpent. We know that clearly in the story of what happened in Genesis in the garden. Jacob, he exchanged truth for falsehood just to get his brother's birthright. We understand as he deceived and worked his way in falsehood, Joseph's brothers exchanged truth for falsehood by deceiving their father about what they did with their younger little brother, Joseph. There's story after story, Old and New Testaments, of how the people of God, those who had faith in the one true God and followed him and made a profession of faith and followed him, how they struggled with dealing with falsehood in their life and not yielding to God's truth and following that truth. And so... If they struggle, certainly we know that we can struggle. We need God's truth and not exchanging truth for falsehood. But secondly, idolatry substitute create, substitutes created things 
for the Creator. Verse 22 and 23, it says, For although they claimed to be wise, this is is speaking about those who knew God but didn't glorify Him or, or, or give thanks to Him at all, They claimed to be wise. It says they became fools. In verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man, birds, animals, and reptiles. And then in verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. Notice the progression in verse 25. After a person exchanges truth for a lie, they then will worship things that are created rather than the creator. There's a progression. You see, once you give in to falsehood, then you begin to actually make that thing, that object, that falsehood, it can become an idol. You begin to worship and give it value and worth greater than it ever should have in your life. And then we begin to serve and worship those things that are created rather than the only one thing, person we should worship, and that is the true creator, God himself. Not only do those who exchange truth give those things worth from their heart, but it says that they serve created things. Not just worship them, but serve them. How do you serve created things? It doesn't take a lot of effort, trust me. I mean, we serve created things every day. How do you serve created things? Just give your time to it. Just give yourself to it in, in your time, your talents, your treasures, your, your resources. When you give it, you're serving it. Especially when we start to raise the value of those things. Now think about it. Nobody, and if this is something that's maybe been part of your life, then you can really understand what I'm going to describe No one who has ever been addicted to something in their life, whatever that is, starts out planning to become addicted to that something, I don't think. If you ask anyone who has struggled with an addiction of any sort, they don't start out thinking, I'm going down this road so that I can become addicted to this thing. That's just not how they start, a person usually when they struggle at that level with something in their life. All of us certainly elevate things beyond what they should be elevated in our life, but no one starts out planning to become addicted to something in the beginning, whether it be alcohol or drugs or sex or pornography or cigarettes or anything in our life, any type of substance, any type of stimulation in our life. We don't plan for it to become that powerful when we start out usually at all. But when a person trusts and depends upon something to satisfy what their heart seeks to satisfy, then slavery to that thing is almost inevitable. It is. Giving ourselves to something and it takes over will become inevitable if we continue to give ourselves to it. We have this little 15, 14 pound little dog named Taffy. I've talked about her before. She's great sermon illustrations because she just is. Um, this week, though, she started, recently, she started doing something. She's about five or six years old, you know, I mean, just typical family dog. But she started doing something the past few weeks 
that's becoming a little bit of a nuisance. When it's time to go to bed, usually she comes to our room, but she's been going into the girls' rooms and just kind of hanging out with them some. And I call her, and she wouldn't come. And, and so sometimes, though, she just goes under their bed and stays there. She won't come out. Now, oftentimes when she's gone under the bed in the past, it's because she goes under the bed because she's gotten something she shouldn't got a hold of, and she knows it, and she's trying to hide it from everybody to see what she has. But this is not what she's been doing. She just goes under the bed. She doesn't have anything. She's just under there, just kind of with her, just kind of lying there looking at you when you look under the bed. Taffy, let's go. Just, just looks at you. Come on, Taffy, let's go to bed. Just looks at you. Knowing full well that she'll cause problems if you leave her there and within just probably a short time. So I thought, and so I reached under the bed, and being the alpha in the family, I thought, well, surely she'll come. And I, she growled at me this week. She never growled at me when I reached for her because she's not supposed to growl at me. But she growled, and I went, okay, now this isn't good. So I thought, I'm smarter than a dog. I've got to be smarter than a dog. So I go, and I get a wrapper that has some sweet, sticky something. You know, somebody had a candy bar or something. And I brought it underneath, started waving in front of her nose. She raised her head, and she started sniffing. She reached her neck out to kind of lick the paper, and I pulled it back about three inches. And she reached further, and then I pulled it back. And inch by inch, she started like a crawl, just slowly following this little wrapper all the way out. And she was all of a sudden outside, not from under the bed, standing and licking this little wrapper, not knowing full well that my right arm was going to grab her like this. And so I just said, okay, let's go. And I took her away. Never even thought what she was doing. She couldn't help herself. You see, it's in her nature. She craved that which I had. She just went full tilt to what I was offering. Because it was in her nature, just she couldn't help herself. She craved that which was food, sweet, whatever it was. That's just the nature of what she is. We're really sometimes not far off from craving those things which we don't even realize we shouldn't be craving that actually do us harm, that actually are exchanging truth for falsehood that are doing detriment to our walk with Christ. You know, some idols, they're just bad anywhere, anytime. They are. Some things in this world are just bad, period. You can't get around it just being bad for you. Granted. But here's my contention. Most idols of my heart and your heart, I bet, if I was a betting man, um, by themselves are probably morally neutral or even considered good in and of themselves. Think about it. I bet they are. That's what makes it so much harder. That's why it makes it so much more important to know truth, to discern from falsehood, to understand your heart and the nature of what your heart desires. You see, when things that are even good in and of themselves that God has given us as good, and he said that it is good, things that are even somewhat morally neutral, when they become an idol, it's when we wrongly elevate their value to a state or a status that God never intended for that to be. That's when it becomes an idol of your heart. Something that's even good that you can participate in, but you raise it to a value that is worshiping the created rather than the creator. Whether it be work, God's given us work to do. That's good. Work existed before Adam and Eve fell in the garden, right? Work is good. 
God said it was good when he created man to work and to serve and to till and to oversee and manage that he, what he created. But when you take and you work and you serve work, when you serve your work, then you are making it an idol of your heart. When you give so much of yourself to your work, your career, your profession, whatever it is, even being a pastor, then you're worshiping that as an idol of your heart. You're giving it more worth than it should receive. And you've elevated it. Exercise. Our nation is full of wanting to have healthy people. Exercise is a good thing. It's good to exercise mentally, physically, and so forth. But when we elevate exercise to the place that it shouldn't be, then it can become something our heart has to have more than it should. Food. Even relationships with a spouse or children or family or relationships can be elevated. God gives us those relationships in our life. They're a good thing. God says, children are a blessing from the Lord. Bless the man whose quiver is full. All these are good things. And yet, we can take those good things and elevate them with such value and worth that we make them an object of our affection beyond what God ever intended for them to be. We must be careful. So what does this say about, what does this say to you and me? It says this, beyond God, if your heart or my heart values and continues to give something else ultimate worth, then we will eventually become enslaved to it. That's what Romans 1 is saying. If we elevate something to the worth that is should not receive, then we will become enslaved to it and we will worship the created things rather than the creator. And that's what we have to be careful. David Pollison says this, most, that most basic question which God poses to each human heart is this, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, and delight? Has something or someone preoccupied your heart so much that functionally, like, Practically, day-to-day experience, you are trusting in that. You are placing your loyalty in that. You are giving yourself wholly to that. If so, then that has become your idol. You see, you cannot truly worship something or someone and keep it as a secondary passion in your life. If something is truly worshipped, it, it will become primary. It will become primary. So you need to ask yourself the question, what am I passionate about? What's primary in my life? What is primary in my life? <clears throat> so understanding this heart of, of, of idolatry is so important. But now identifying, identifying idolatry of the heart is also very important. Take just a moment and reflect. Just take a moment in your mind's eye. Reflect. Reflect on what particular sins, struggles, your particular besetting struggles, besetting sins are. Those things that have been around as long as you've been around in your life. It doesn't matter if you're 13 or 63. Think about your life and what particular things you continue to battle over and over again. Maybe it's anger, a struggle with anger. Maybe it's impatience. Maybe it's a sharp tongue, 
verbally to others. You're quick with the, with the words that fly out of your mouth. Ready, fire, aim is kind of how you approach speaking to others about things. Maybe it's pride. You struggle with being prideful about the things in your life or the things you want to have in your life. Maybe it's lust. Lusting after things that truly grab your heart. Maybe it's greed. Greed, you truly desire those things that you just can't seem to acquire in this world. But you always are longing for them and you can never seem to be satisfied once you get something. Whatever those things are in your particular heart, no matter what particular sins seem to be routinely bringing you struggle and heartache and pain and hurt even to you and even to those around you that are close to you because of those choices and those values. Here is what is so important to understand. Those particular sins are really, though they're important to address and practically important to, uh, to assess and deal with, there's something that we also need to address, and that is the sin beneath the particular sins. The sin beneath the particular sins. And what is that? It is what Romans 1 speaks of. It is the sin of idolatry of the heart. I think God tells us this, not just in Romans 1, but in other places of Scripture. The sin beneath the sin, God understood this even when he gave his law to his people. What are the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments that God gave his people? Exodus chapter 20 or Deuteronomy 5. Exodus chapter 20 says this, verses 3 and 4, as God gave through Moses his law, he said, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. And as some of you children today in your lesson in Kingdom Builders were studying this, the second commandment. Do you remember looking at this today? Some of you I know do. God says these words in giving the law to his people. Now, that's commandment one and two, but what are commandments three through 10? Commandments three through 10, taking God's name in vain. You remember the other ones? Keeping the Sabbath, honoring your parents. Don't commit murder or adultery or theft or lying or coveting. You see, those are commandments 3 through 10, but commandments 1 and 2, they describe more idolatry of the heart, you see. And commandments 3 through 10 are connected to 1 and 2. You can't keep them separate. They are completely connected. You cannot break commandments 3 through 10 without also breaking commandments 1 and 2. That's the way it's designed. God designed it that way. You can't just murder someone and not be placing something else in your life as more valuable than God himself. There's a reason why you murder someone. There's a reason why you lie. There's a reason why you covet what someone else has. All the different commandments 3 through 10... Those underlying struggles of the heart are what we break in Commandments 1 and 2. One of the best definitions that I have read about idolatry is Dr. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, 
An idol is anything in our lives that occupies the place that should be occupied by God alone. Anything that is central in my life, anything that seems to me essential, an idol is anything by which I live and on which I depend, anything that holds such a controlling position in my life that it moves and rouses and attracts so much of my time and attention, my energy and money. Show me your checkbook register. Okay, don't show it to me. But if you did, I would probably be able to help you see where you place your value of things in your life. It wouldn't be very hard. Show me your Google calendar or your day planner or whatever you use for your time management system. Show it to me. Let me see it. And it would show what's important to you, where you spend your time. And today, time seems to be even a commodity more precious than money in many people's lives. That's where you will see those things. So just how do we identify these idols in our, in our hearts? Well, just looking where our time or our money or our talents are invested, just taking an inventory of our vices or our habits that we struggle with, you think, well, that'll do it. No, that won't do it. That's important to do so, to understand those things, but that alone really won't deal with identifying a heart of idolatry. You see, that strategy misses the mark on what I think we understand most idols of the heart are all about. It, it misses the mark. With that approach, here's what will happen. If you just simply try to identify those things, look at your own check register, look at your uh, day planner and identify maybe where you are spending too much time, here's what will happen. If you, just, if you just alone do that, I think you should do that, but not just that. With that approach, you'll likely just identify those things and then just try really hard not to do those things, right? That's what you'll do. Okay, I won't spend so much time there. Okay, I won't spend so much money there anymore. You'll just try harder not to do it if you're like me, or you'll try harder to do certain things so that you won't do other things. That's what we do. We just dig in our heels and just go trying harder. And I don't think that really addresses what the sin is beneath the sin. So, in your bulletin, there are some questions right there. It's kind of a spiritual EKG I want you to perform upon yourself. An assessment. And I think by doing this, answering some of these basic questions, it will help you along with looking at your time and resources and where, you're, where you are in your life. It will really help you address the heart issue. And that's what you have to address, where your heart is. A diagnosis of your heart. These are some diagnostic questions that I think are very helpful. What do I worry about most? What do you worry about most? What did you lie awake last night thinking about? What kept you up Tuesday night this week and you couldn't sleep? What was it? Was it your health? Was it about money? Was it about your kids? Was it about your career? What kept you awake? What, when you woke up, was spinning on the hard drive of your brain? that you, didn't even, you just didn't even realize you woke up thinking about those things. And you often wake up thinking about those things. 
What would cause you to feel hopeless if you failed at it or you completely lost it? It would cause you to feel hopeless. What is it? Is it your job? Is it your business that you're trying to see successful? Is it your marriage? Is it your house? The fear of losing it? What do you comfort yourself with when things go bad in life? Do you comfort yourself with the internet? Do you comfort yourself with just buying more toys? Do you comfort yourself with food? With other things? What do you comfort yourself with? What do you look to to give you security? What do you think about most easily and most often? Where does your mind go without even having to make an effort? It just goes there. What makes you feel the most self-worth when you think about it? What gives you self-worth? And what do you honestly feel would make you happy? If you had it, you'd be happy in this world. What is that thing? You answer these questions and you're going to address your heart. You're going to address where you really are if you answer even one or two of those questions. And by answering them, by really honestly praying with the Lord about them and speaking about what your answers, he already knows the answers that you have for these things. You just need to acknowledge them to him. And as you do so, you will understand what your struggle is beneath your struggle. You will understand. Gospel renewal can only happen in my life and in your life as we seek to address the idols of our heart.